You're listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and how to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. And now, enjoy Factual America with our host, Matthew Sherwood. Welcome to Factual America, a podcast that explores the themes that make America unique through the lens of documentary filmmaking. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. In each episode, it is my pleasure to interview documentary filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Uh, today we're going to talk about a topic or topics that uh, is never far away, uh, probably gets alluded to in all our podcasts, but uh, this will be the first time we uh, deal with it head on, and that's uh, race and politics in the U.S., and our guest will be actually something he's been talking about in a lot of his writings, increasingly racially polarized politics in the U.S. So uh, without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Richard Johnson to the uh, podcast. Uh, so uh, he's a lecturer at US, in U.S. politics and international relations at the University of Lancaster. So welcome. Thank you very much. Um, he's written extensively on race and U.S. politics. Uh, his latest book is The End of the Second Reconstruction, Obama, Trump, and the Crisis of Civil Rights. That is supposed to come out in 2020. Now, we, we don't know exactly when this is going to get uh, published, but uh, uh, I could say next year, and that would give you a year's uh, grace. But uh, we can talk, we'll be talking more about a chapter from your book. Um, you, uh, I think uh, we should make a reference to the fact that I think it's pretty safe to say you called the UK election, which we had uh, a little over a week ago. And he's just off an appearance on CNN to talk about the Trump impeachment. So it's been quite a busy seven to eight days here in London. So um, is there anything else I should add, uh, Richard? What, uh, maybe you can tell quickly some of your other, you know, your specialties and things you're working on. Yeah, so I, I'm all, most of my research is centers around race and American politics, and particularly, I sort of say, race and American democracy, because I think that racial inclusion in the United States is essential to the vibrancy of democracy in the United States, that the two can't be seen as, as separate. So in addition to the book, uh, which is really about uh, civil rights enforcement in American mm -hmm. democracy. Um, I've also been writing more specifically about voting rights and the enforcement or non-enforcement of the Voting Rights Act at different intervals uh, in its uh, more than 50 years of uh, history. Okay. Well, without uh, without further ado, I think we, uh, as, as, as our listeners know, the way we uh, rock and roll here at uh, Factual America is that we uh, always have a documentary film as a backdrop. And... Uh, this time around, we have a an incredible film. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's uh, I Am Not Your Negro, directed by Raoul Peck, who is a Haitian. He's actually a minister of culture in the 1990s in the Haitian government. He was a uh, Best Documentary uh, Academy Award, uh, well, nominated for that, and actually won the BAFTA. And I, I do, I've got an A.O. Scott quote from the New York Times I think is worth uh, reading here. Uh, Whatever you think about the past and future of what used to be called race relations, this movie will make you think again, and may even change your mind. So, why did you choose this film, or we kind of chose it together, but uh, what, why do you think this is appropriate to what you, you, the work you've been doing? Well, what I like about Baldwin is that he 
uh, is able to speak about the long political development of the United States, uh, but in ways which are quite arresting uh, and, you know, particularly uh, for the white audiences to whom he uh, often spoke would, uh, you know, be, uh, were designed to shake um, mm. people out of their comfort. And mm. uh, I think that, you know, in the, in the work that I do in my academic scholarship, I see a lot of what I try to do is trying to, um, to, to, to shake people out of their comfort, to, to look at the United States uh, in comparative perspectives, to dismantle particular claims of American exceptionalism, which have, have run so deeply. So mm. I, th I, think, I think Baldwin, I, I, you know, I look at it from a kind of institutional perspective, and I think Baldwin looks at a more sort of philosophical perspective, which I, I find very valuable as well. Okay. And uh, I, I think that's it's all very interesting, very in line with, um, as some will know, um, Alamo Pictures is a sponsor of this uh, podcast and um, often makes, well, it makes documentaries about the U.S. from a European perspective. And I think this uh, combination of a Haitian uh, director, Baldwin, who himself spent a lot of time in France, or most of his life in France, it's a... Uh, and then in his own keen observations, in some ways more about the U.S. It, itself and ra rather than race specifically. Uh, so for those who haven't seen the film, and uh, it came out in 2016, um, can you give us a brief synopsis of what this film's about? Well, it uses the words of Baldwin, and really it's sort of based on a book that Baldwin never finished, which was going to be a book about... Uh, three friends of his, uh, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King, who all uh, were murdered in the 1960s, uh, civil rights leaders, and all really quite young. I mean, it's amazing to think not a single one of those three men lived to be 40 years mm. old. And uh, I think Baldwin was going to try to use their lives and deaths as a way of speaking more generally about uh about the United States and its relationship with race. And he never really got beyond a sort of 30 pages of yeah. notes. And those notes then formed the basis of this, um, of, of this uh, film. And so the entire film are Baldwin's words, both from his writings, these notes, and also his um, speaking appearances and television appearances throughout his life. But what is also, um, I think, uh, a wonderful thing that the director has done here is been able to has added so many other mm. layers to that. Mm. So he's added more contemporary imagery of the Black Lives Matter yeah. struggle mm. and so on. But also, I think there's this huge unspoken kind of commentary un underlying it of the kind of um, popular culture of the United States, American mm. film um uh, American music, uh, advertising, the media, um, and so the film is also interspersed with all, you know, with all these sort of images of, uh, you know, the kind of heroics of the American West as it was predicted, mm. predict, uh, portrayed in cowboy films, and the, um, you know, the insulting way that African Americans were portrayed in American early American film and so on. So, uh, it's, in one sense, it's a try, it's it's an attempt to uh, complete and finish. Uh, Baldwin's book, but uh, mm. but also brings in so much more 
than I think even you know uh, the, the Baldwin notes themselves contain. Yes, and I think uh, a part of that is I hadn't realized, and Peck draws it out, and probably you know through those three, if it's all from those thirty pages of notes, what a rich thirty pages it is. Um, in that uh, Baldwin himself made references to films a lot. Yes. So growing up, what were the images he was seeing when he was growing up? Who were the positive and or lack of positive uh, black role models that he had? Uh, and even contemporary films of his time. And uh, I think very interestingly, you know, there's even one where he's uh, saying, well, white audiences saw it this way, but if you were sitting in a film theater and cinema in, in uh, Harlem, you could have heard the black <laughs> community saying something very different. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's extremely well done. And as you say, also with the current uh, news footage and, uh, and other imagery, um, I mean, one thing I picked up on was... Uh, and I think Baldwin even makes reference, it's not just the U.S., he even sort of there's some lines in there about Western society in general. And uh, one of the uh, images, because he shows a lot of advertising images from an era of, of how uh, African Americans were depicted. And I noticed that one of them was a Jay Sainsbury's ad, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a U.S.-based mm -hmm. uh, image. But uh, I think with that in mind, I think what would be good is to... Um, uh, Maybe uh, at this point, uh, just kind of dive right in, in terms of a little bit of history. Uh, that's certainly what Baldwin's about. He was like, you have to look at the whole arch of history. You can't just look at the last few decades. He makes a lot of references to 400 years, you know, on. Um, and so I, I think for those listening um, across the globe who may not know uh, American history as detailed, certainly as you and I, I certainly my cursory knowledge is uh, so maybe talk to us maybe i don't know where do we start uh but maybe a good starting point is the end of the american civil war and what is called uh construction reconstruction in which uh, you refer to as the first reconstruction yeah so um to put that into context um you know i i side with a um, group of scholars who who view the united states as at best a middle-aged democracy not uh, particularly, especially long-standing democracy, a country that could be, in comparative terms, understood as a democracy for about five about five decades or so. And, and the reason mm. for that is because the kind of elemental features of democracy, um, multi-party competition, free assembly and speech, um, access to uh, a meaningful vote, were denied to uh, millions of Americans mm. until the 1960s. And the one exception to that long period of race-based race exclusion to American democracy was the decade after the American Civil War, which was known as Reconstruction, a word that Abraham Lincoln used in the last speech that Lincoln gave oh, before he was killed. Yeah. Um, Lincoln called in that speech for um, a reconstruction of American democracy. Um, on, on new terms, and it's in that speech that Lincoln, for the first and, as it turned out, the only time in his life, called for the uh, vote to be extended to African Americans. Mm. Uh, and so that decade ended up being a, you know, an incredible decade where 2,000 African Americans were elected to public offices throughout the country. You had uh, black mayors, black uh, senators and congressmen, um, black lieutenant governors. You had the acting governor of Louisiana was the son of a slave. Um, 
And what's so important about that period is not just the uh, um, uh, election of uh, people who became part of the black elite, but also the grassroots engagement of ordinary African Americans in that period, which was profound. You had uh, the, the, the Republican Party of the South was, mm. was made up of thousands of ordinary African Americans who, who showed uh, you know, untold bravery in things like wearing uh, Ulysses Grant uh, badges and pins to work when they were working as cleaners. And, 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 uh, and, and he was the Republican nominee and then later president. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. And, and then the, he was a hated figure by the white South, but these African Americans in the South uh, you know, bravely supported him. And they came under untold violence for it. And that's then the next important thing about Reconstruction is the, the important thing about Reconstruction is not just that it happened, but that, that it ended. Mm. And that it ended in a dramatic fashion. And uh, uh, in, in my book, I write about a, a black congressman from Florida who um, made sp some of the first speeches in Congress calling for federal funding for edu uh, public education. But when he died in 1905, uh, he, he died uh, without even the right to vote. Um, by that point, uh, African-Americans had been disenfranchised in Florida. And um, his, there, was no even, there was no obituary even published for him when he died. And so what's important from that understanding of that history is about the fragility mm. of democracy. And that's true all around the world. But it's also very true in America. And I think that one of the things that um, Baldwin uh, recognized was that this story of democracy is not some kind of Whiggish teleology of uh, ever-expanding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you hear a lot of people say that this is a, this is a journey of the, the, the more perfect union and it's always a kind of step forward march mm. to, to progress. But actually, America had one instance of... Uh, multiracial uh, uh, democracy, at least mm. male democracy in the 19th century, that uh, that collapsed. Mm. And, uh, and so therefore, when we think about democracy in America today, I think we should also not think that it is um, impenetrable. Well, that, that, that's interesting. I think the, the what I find very interesting is also the grassroots comments, because I can tell you as someone who born and raised in the United States, um, certainly one side of my family is from the South, um, the other side's from Texas, but we don't consider ourselves part of the South because we like to forget our history. Uh, but uh, and there were all a bunch of Germans and, that came afterwards. But anyway, uh, it's always been sort of portrayed as Reconstruction was almost this top-down sort of. Mm. The North came in, picked some black uh, African Americans, put them in office, uh, and then once they pulled back. Because uh, we haven't even mentioned Rutherford B. Rutherford B. Hayes, I never thought I'd mention him in a podcast <laughs> or any kind of conversation. To be to, to be honest, but uh, once that that compromise was made, um, that that was it. But you're saying that it was there was more to it than they had more legs to it than than that. It wasn't just something that was enforced upon a, a, the the population. That's right, and the and the and the reason why we can we can be pretty confident that Reconstruction mm. was a mass. Uh, movement of democracy mm. in the South was that after the compromise of uh, seven, uh, 1876 mm. when uh, the, the Republican uh, elites in Washington uh, agreed to remove federal troops from the South who had mm. been providing physical protection for people to be able to vote mm. um, uh, and Rutherford uh, B. Hayes was the uh, beneficiary of that and became president that efforts of 
what we might still see is that grassroots efforts of democracy mm. persisted for another two decades. And um, African-American um, newspapers, uh, which were of a political nature, were still being published. They were still running for office. And really what brought Reconstruction to an end was um, a really profound violence which occurred mm. in, in the South. And that the rise of lynchings in the 1890s is not unconnected with the 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 end of of, of mm. reconstruction mm. um i mean i saw in your book you make mention uh, i think because something i didn't know until i many years ago i lived in the state of north carolina and uh, there's a paper that had an article that i read one time about this sort of connection between black republicans and white populace mm. in a lot of these areas and coming up against a you know, it's hard for people to believe now, given how the parties are aligned, but coming up against a democratic machine and those machines controlled the newspapers. And so obviously all the the, the press and the, the PR, if you will, uh, or propaganda in another way, and just they just got stomped down. And that's one of the things also that I yeah. want to, you know, try and do in, in, in my in my book is to to show that actually there were there were um pockets of success of an alliance between working-class whites and mm. working-class African-Americans in the South, uh, even after the elite politicians in Washington had kind of abandoned mm. the project. So, you know, there was a general strike in, in, in New Orleans um, at the end of the 19th century, and that was a, that was a general strike that was uh, coordinated between both black and white unions. Mm. Um, and the, in, the, in, the, in the 1890s in states like... Uh, uh, North Carolina and in Alabama, that this fusion of mm. um, the white working class populace and the black Republicans actually saw a degree of political success. And mm. it was then when the, the kind of white supremacist democratic machine mm. then actually, mm. that's when they pushed back with their most gr the greatest levels mm. of violence. Okay. So I know we'll get to uh, you. We also, there's this second reconstruction that a lot of people talk about. But uh, before we do that, I think there's there's so many, I mean, I, as I was mentioning before, I'd almost like to show the whole film uh, as a, as one big giant clip. I highly recommend people watching it, um, uh, especially for Baldwin. I, I, I can't find, I, th it's, I can't, it's basically his observations. I wanted to say they're more than bon mots. They're more than truisms. It's just his very keen observations about... Uh, not just race, but American society. But at the very beginning of the film, it starts off with a, uh, a very young Nick, Dick Cavett. For those of you who don't know, he's a talk show host. Uh, Dick Cavett show was sort of a, oh, it was kind of the intellectuals talk show, if you will, of the 60s and 70s. And, uh, okay, it was still a talk show, chat show. But uh, he would, you know, in this, we see later in that same clip, he brings on a, heart, a professor in philosophy from Yale to have a, a debate. People were actually having debates on TV. I don't think that can happen anymore. Um, but uh, he asks a uh, he asks um, um, he asks uh, James Baldwin a, a question, and uh, this is the question and then James's answer. Mr. Baldwin, I, I'm sure you still meet the uh, remark that um, what are the Negroes? Why aren't they optimistic? Um, they say, but it's getting so much better. There are Negro mayors. There's Negroes in all, all of sports. Uh, there are Negroes in, in politics. They're, uh, uh, they're even accorded the ultimate accolade of being in television commercials now. And, uh, I'm glad you're smiling. Uh, is it at once getting much better and still hopeless? 
Well, I don't think there's much hope for it, you know, to tell you the truth. You know, as long as people are using this peculiar language. It's not a question of what happens to the, to the Negro here, or to the black man here. That's a, that's a very vivid question for me, you know. But, it, but the real question is what's going to happen to this country. I have to repeat that. You're damn right I got the blues. my head down to my shoes. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases and upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. And now, back to Factual America. So welcome back to Factual America. So we had that uh, clip of Dick Cavett and uh, interviewing James Baldwin, and you've also had a little break. So uh, welcome back to the show. I think what I would like to almost flip that around, and in that clip, Dick says, you know, look, you've, there's black sports stars, you've got politicians, uh, he even kind of jokes, and James Baldwin even smiles about you're even allowed to be in commercial, you know, TV commercials. So why are you optimistic? And we've seen there that uh, James is not especially uh, optimistic. Uh, so what has, maybe this is a good point for you to go kind of give us a little bit of the, because this does happen. This interview happens right in the middle of what I guess would be called the second reconstruction. And then we can then go from there in terms of what has, what has changed since, since that period. So when, when, when is the, when did it start? How long is it? And then how did it start being reconstruct, deconstructed? So the first reconstruction kind of fell at two levels. First, it fell in the 1876 compromise, and then really at the start of the mm. 20th century, that even the grassroots activism had really been snuffed out. Mm. And it's really then in the 18, uh, sorry, the 1950s and 1960s that we then see the revival of um, federal commitment to enforcing the. Um, citizen rights of African Americans mm. in, a, in a material way, and we see in the film actually, you know, examples of, you know, the, the federal government, much like after the Civil War, had to occupy parts of its own country in mm. order to ensure uh, civil rights were enforced. You know, the day that James Meredith, an African American student, mm. was admitted to the University of Mississippi, there were thirty-one thousand. U.S. troops mobilized in, in northern uh, Mississippi in 1962, I think it was, um, to enable Meredith to go to his university, which was more than was stationed at the time on the Korean Peninsula. And so what we're seeing at this time when uh, Baldwin's been interviewed uh, by Dick Havitt is, you know, there's potentially great deal of optimism here mm. that the, the federal government is, is, is showing that renewed strength that it hasn't really been seen since the days of Ulysses Grant. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, um, Baldwin is aware, he doesn't spell, spell it out as in specific historical terms, but he think he's aware of the fragility of these moments mm. and um, the conditionality, I think, as well. I think he's very suspicious of the of the of the depth of the commitment and he's very he's very yeah. critical of bobby kennedy throughout the film as well which is very interesting <laughs> he is i don't think they like each other no. but or d didn't like each yeah. other but uh no i think that's a i think that's a very good point there's a I, and and so you would say that then so if people are i mean many many listeners will be 
you know, it's well before their time, but uh, well aware of the 50s and 60s. But the that impact had lasted in the 70s and 80s. I know in the chapter I've read, you, and I was aware of this, that uh, administrations of both uh, political parties, um, it was sort of seamless, really, re- uh, passing, uh, renewing the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of, uh, at different times. Uh, so sort of seemed incontroversial. So um, I think this gets to a point where maybe what has, when did this start, in your view, when did this start changing? Yeah, so one of the things that, so this second reconstruction has has apparently lasted much longer than the first. And the, and the reason for that, or one of the reasons, is that there did seem to be a bipartisan consensus for it in a way that didn't exist in the first Reconstruction, where the Democratic Party in the first Reconstruction never accepted Reconstruction. And something like the Voting Rights Act has been renewed under um, multiple administrations, uh, Gerald Ford, uh, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, all signed extensions and strengthenings Mm -hmm. of the Voting Rights Act. And then it seems to have unraveled perhaps with a kind of bitter irony, I think during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's when we start to see a real um, intensification of a kind of um, of what I call a racially polarized partisanship, Mm -hmm. which was always present to to some extent, but I think the levels of it have um, gone off the charts. Uh, mm. Since the you know since Obama was elected, mm. now I mean, do you? So uh, you make you start off your chapter that I've read uh, with the 2010 midterms. Um, now and in different places through your chapter, you, it, it's sort of a it's not even not a dotted line. You draw a pretty strong line that it's sort of a some of these reactions uh, the Democrats did very poorly in 2010, and you know you, you look at sort of the racial elements of this, but. You know, 2010 was also a reaction to Obamacare, wasn't it? I mean, is there, is it, is it that cut and? I mean, your view, is it that cut and dry? Is it, is it purely a racial issue, or do you think there are many other factors that are kind of feeding in? I mean, I think that I think race suffuses so many of these mm. issues that it's hard to, to 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 take out what is race and what and what isn't. Mm. And I guess that's also. Uh, one of the things I admire about Baldwin is that uh, uh, that he doesn't view, you know, kind of race relations as some kind of you know external thing that it's endogenous to all of these other issues. I think, including the reaction to the to the healthcare law, that mm-hmm. it was um, ultimately the Medicaid expansion which would have uh, assisted African Americans the most was the part of the. Uh, legislation which was uh, most strongly uh, objected to and was blocked through the Supreme mm-hmm. Court or was blocked through uh, Republican governors with the aid of the Supreme Court in um, and nearly all of these were in the South and uh, half of African Americans lived in states where their governors blocked the the Medicaid expansion which would have provided them with the government provided uh, health care. So you know, even even something like that, I think it's hard. I don't like to sort of say one issue is a racial issue and one issue is a non-racial issue. I think that mm. there are racial dimensions to to all issues in a way. Um, I think this might be a good... Uh, again, as I said, there's about two or... Well, many clips I'd like to play from this film, but I think this might be a good one, for, good point to just show the clip where um, 
I've, I've got it labeled here as not a racial problem. It's not really what Baldwin's saying, but he's saying that it's going to take much more than just a Voting Rights Act or a Civil Rights Act to make changes. And I think then that actually kind of plays into what, what you're, you're saying. So uh, let's have a quick look at that clip. Forget the Negro problem. Don't write any voting acts. We had that. It's called the 15th Amendment. During the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, what you have to look at is what is happening in this country. And what is really happening is that brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother. White men have lynched Negroes knowing them to be their sons. White women have had Negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers. It is not a racial problem. It's a problem whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it. That great Western house I come from is one house, and I am one of the children of that house. Simply, I'm the most despised child of that house. And it is because the American people are unable to face the fact that, in fact, I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My blood, my father's blood is in that soil. So um, I think that's... That's a, that's a very good clip. Uh, if there were others we had time to watch or listen to, I would... There, I mean, throughout the film, especially about middle of the way through, and this is the director doing it, I would say, um, a lot of references to, um, well, say white America, but certainly majority of Americans not being, you know, having a public and private life. Um, not actually as a, as a population, it kind of gets to issues of, we've discussed on the show before, America dream, these sort of things. There is a stated view of what everyone wants, yet an inability to deal with the fact that most of us aren't able to achieve it, or at least what we were told we should be wanting. Uh, I think he mentions the, the house and picket fence and the Plymouth, not that anyone's driving a Plymouth anymore, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the equivalent. Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, I think... It kind of brings us to a point where, uh, I mean, you've written about it, uh, your, your racially polarized partisanship. Uh, if you look at the parties now versus where in the 90s, uh, they were much closer to, re you know, the Republicans are always a little bit whiter than the Democrats were a little less white, as to put it crudely. Uh, now, you know, uh, Republicans are 19 percentage points wider than the, the demographic, what the demographic average would be for the U.S., the, Demo the Democrats are 15 points less. What is that thing? Uh, there's a question that was polled, uh, is racism the main issue holding black, you know, something to that yeah, yeah. effect. Uh, racism is the main issue that's a stumbling block to, to blacks or black achievement or something to yeah, that yeah. effect. I'm not stating it very yeah. well. Uh, but Republicans say 14, only agreed, only 14% agree. You've got Democrats at 64%. So you've got two parties. For a, for a country where, uh, and we've dealt with it here in the UK and a lot of other Western democracies where sometimes the two main parties don't really differentiate themselves very much. Uh, they're, they're, that's a quite a big, big difference. So, um, I mean, what is your, you're, you're analyzing this now. Uh, and I think what's great about the work you're doing is it's a real focus on contemporary I think a lot of scholars, if I may say, kind of get still stuck in the 60s uh, on a lot of this stuff. Um, where do you see this heading? What is the, uh, I mean, where we are today and what does it look, you know, is, is this inevitable? Is it just going to carry on? What do you, what do you think? Is there going to be a backlog, backlash? What is, what is the future? 
Well, I do think that the, now that the parties have polarized so much on, on these kinds of questions, that it puts the civil rights uh, infrastructure of the second reconstruction in, in grave peril. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's already, you know, uh, the Voting Rights Act has already been um, s substantially diminished and we could be seeing uh, more cases down the line that could 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 really spell mm -hmm. the death knell of, the, of that act, which I think is the most important um, mm -hmm. piece of civil rights legislation in American history. Uh, what, what, you know, the question of, you know, I don't think anything is, is inevitable, but I think we end up on these kind of, kind of path dependent directions mm -hmm. which become which means that it becomes harder and harder to reverse track mm -hmm. and they become kind of re reinforcing you know i think a lot of people looked at the obama election and um, saw that as uh, this kind of great wave of white people mm -hmm. finally voting for an african-american but you know obama's you know uh, re-election he received the lowest share of whites of the white two-party vote of any successfully elected um president um, it, it, as as long as records have begun, so his his success was attributable to his ability to mobilize non-white Americans uh, at historically high levels of turnout and support. Um, the question of whether that you know is sustainable for the Democrats though is is an open question. I don't know. Is there another candidate that can do that like Obama? Because they say, Demo I mean, people like to say demographics is de destiny, and a, a lot of I'm aware of, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, Democratic uh, strategists saying, oh, just looking at the demographic trends and saying, oh, you know, in, in some ways getting lazy, I would argue, yeah. um, saying, well, you know, if we wait our time, bide our time, you know, even Texas is going to go for the Democrats in the near future. I think, as you point out in your research, that uh, if there's not just white flight from the cities, but there's white flight from parties, and that is happening faster in the Democratic Party than the... Uh, less whitening or darkening, however you want to put it, of the American demographics. So, uh, if anything, the, the Democrats are heading for further and further losses, certainly in the short to medium term. Yeah, and this, you know, this racially polarized partisanship or white flight from the Democratic Party, as I've also called it, you know, it's already happened in some parts of the country in a dramatic fashion, you know. Uh, Obama only got 10% of the white vote in some of the Deep South states. Um, so, this, I think, you know, a lot of people look at the ch changing demographics of the United States. Mm -hmm. A lot of that's um, caused by uh, um, Hispanic migration to the United States. And mm -hmm. I think that's a more complicated story. Yeah. Uh, the African-American population is staying about the same. Mm -hmm. um, and the question of whether the Latino population in the United States will become as a, ro you know, a robust ally of, of African-Americans, uh, electorally speaking, is I still think an open question, you know, Trump did no worse among Latino voters than Mitt Romney did, for example. And, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that he did marginally better because mm. the, the Latinos who vote in America are Latino citizens and they're going to have perhaps different views than mm -hmm. uh, non-citizen Latinos in the United States. So there are all sorts of complications there. And I think it's, I think you're absolutely right that it's lazy. there is a laziness mm -hmm. in just assuming that as the country becomes le less non-Hispanic white, that then uh, there is salvation there for the endurance of the second reconstruction. Yeah. Well, and laziness can be on both sides. I mean, the Republicans just get sort of, uh, well, you know, <laughs> the Democrats aren't doing their jobs and we can kind of keep getting away, getting away with this in, in essence. I mean, I think you get a... One thing I know, and I have some connections in the Latino community, certainly Mexican-Americans, um, 
they tend to be more you know socially dem uh, conservative than the um, average uh, certainly these days the average democratic voter uh, and this kind of gets to a point of um, something that uh, is very very topical now certainly here in the in the UK uh, after the election results of uh, last week uh, where the uh, the Conservative Party uh, won seats they had never won or hadn't won in over a hundred years uh, in working class areas, especially up north. Um, uh, in reference to some something you said earlier, I mean, I've I've got the uh, Democracy Index uh, here from the Economist Intelligence Unit in 2016, which is uh, the B2B publishing arm of the Economist. Uh, my former employer, I have to be upfront about that and also I am a freelance contributor so uh, there is a little skin in the game here but they were titled it Revenge of the Deplorables and um, first the popular revolt in 2016 against political elites who are perceived by many to be out of touch and failing to represent the interests of ordinary people uh, in that same uh, in uh, year they uh, also downgraded the US from democracy full democracy to flawed democracy now um, I think how does this, this is a, this is quite a, I hate to put, use this expression, but quite a cocktail that we're, we have what's happening here, what you're discussing, which is happening racially. But at the same time, we've got a working in both, I would say, both certainly in the UK, but in, and in the US of a working class that seem, feels left behind and is just looking for a change of some sort. And whether it be in, in 2016, it meant voted for, voting for Trump for many of them. Do you have a view on how that's going to, how that is playing out and how it could continue playing out. Yeah, well, uh, one of the things that I um, th look look at in history that I think is in perhaps instructive for this period is is looking at that decade at the end of the 19th century where there was this kind of multiracial populism which existed. Mm. Um, and I think that that period of American history is, is, is not well known and is poorly understood but I think in many ways could be very instructive for uh, a more positive uh, future out of this dilemma, that it was uh, a way in which you could have, uh, you know, this was a dec you know, the 1890s was a decade when white farmers were experiencing um, a huge economic uh, dislocation. Mm. And um, in some American states, they realized that they had more in common mm. with the African-American uh, African tenant farmers than they, they did with the, um, you know, the business elite. And they teamed up together and there were pockets of success. And I think that what I would, you know, encourage for, for this, this current moment is not to necessarily look at people's reaction against or people's sense of dislocation from elites and mm -hmm. the economic system. Uh, as inherently tied up with um, racial animus, that I think that there is a way, actually, that uh, you know, um, non-white communities have felt that dislocation for a very long time, mm -hmm. and in some ways, white communities are kind of caught up. Mm. And there is a potential political alliance mm. there that could be formed under the right leadership. I'm not entirely sure that leadership is visible well, well it, since all the leadership seems to be over 73 or you know i think it's hard to hard to see who this next generation is going to be but yes um, it, i i i agree with you i think there's a there's a real it's it's always been the potential yeah. i think people who've looked at these things have always thought well these are two groups of 
of, of certainly in the U.S., a population that have in some ways more in common than the elites that have been, I hate to put it this way, but leading them, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, I think what I'm going to suggest is that we actually let uh, James Baldwin have the last word on this since he's so eloquent. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a clip where um, at the very end where he um, basically says uh, just Americans need to stop worrying about numbers. And I think Chase Manhattan Bank is, I guess I'm not supposed to say that, but he mentions that. I can say, I can report that that's what he says. Um, and that we need less numbers and more passion. I know that no matter how it comes about, it will be bloody. It will be hard. I still believe that we can do with this country something that has not been done before. We are misled here because we think of numbers. You don't need numbers. You need passion. And this is proven by the history of the world. The tragedy is that most of the people who say they care about it do not care. What they care about is their safety and their profits. When I was laying in jail with my back to the So on that note, I'm not going to say anything else except to thank our guest for coming on to the show. It's been a, been a pleasure. Uh, uh, I think this is going to be a very eventful year coming up. Uh, well, if you're up for it, we'd love to have you on again as we get closer to uh, certainly the November election. Uh, for those uh, our listeners, uh, how would they? Um, what's the best way to follow you? What's your Twitter handle? Because I thought you have an. Ex- I, I really enjoyed your your Twitter feed. I'm on Twitter, Richard Mark J. That's Mark spelled M-A-R-C. Okay, and uh, if they're the book, it's coming out uh, June 2020. June 2020. Yeah. Is it Polity? Polity Press. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let me thank our listeners. Um, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guest and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.